0: At any rate, well as any politician will tell you, polls are ten a penny, but the ones that count are the ones that are seldom. And by this definition, the Decennial Sight and Sound Top 100 Movie Poll is certainly a referendum and a weather vane at the same time. It comes around, as the title suggests, every ten years and takes into account the favourite films of 1,600 film critics around the world, including Mr. Donald Clark, who is with me in studio this evening to tell me all the secrets of the Sight. And sound poll and and to look at uh, look at how it it actually happens setting your own uh, p- being part of this Donald mm-hmm. and per- t- possibly your own bias to the one side and <laughs> um, why do you think that sight and sound is such a significant poll in terms of films
1: well it's it started off as a select poll in 1952 It was only a relatively small number of critics were involved in it that um, year. Uh, uh, De Sica's Bicycle Thieves came up on top. Uh, over the years, the number of critics has increased. It's become more eclectic. It's become more diverse. Now, as you say, it's 600 across the world. In terms of what it does, um, you can... F- if you want to find a poll out there, and I was kind of stress this when I mm. I'll get defensive because people will always start <laughs> saying, this is a poll uh, this, which works to an already elderly and creaky canon and reinforces the elderly and creaky canon, as we shall learn, less so this time mm. around. Um, And it strikes me that if you want to find a poll where Paddington 2 or The Dark Knight is number one, there are hundreds and thousands out there on the internet. It is, to my mind, a useful thing to have one place somewhere where a classic canon can be formed and then can evolve and can be altered um, to suit with the times and can then, in its larger form in the hundred films, can offer um, a very useful guide to people Mm. who want to investigate the world of cultural cinema. I mean, we always want to tread carefully when you not use too many pompous terms about this. Uh, And this, uh, and the sight and sound list I think does that better than any other list around. All right. Uh, Well, let's just, instead of trying to do at number three, (laughs) what is the top film in this year's poll? Um, As I was saying, Back in '52, when this first happened, uh, the first winner was um, "Bicycle Thieves" by Vittoria De Sica. In those 70 years, only three films to mm. this point have mm. actually held the title. Um, it was "Bicycle Thieves," then for then in 1962, it was "Sis um, Kane." Um, by Orson Welles, which ruled until 10 years ago when Alfred Hitchcock's Vertigo took over. This year, zipping up from 35, is Chantal Ackerman's Jean Delman 23 Key de Commerce 180 Brussels. I'll be calling it Jean Delman ever <laughs> from this point onwards. Um, which... Reflects very much, I think, the, how the discourse has gone over the last 10 years in the world of film criticism. Um, to a greater point than at any stage before, we have been discussing the underrepresentation of women in film. We've been also discussing the underrepresentation of people of color in film. But in particular, I think the conversation when it comes yeah. to, for example, major film festivals, when it comes to what studios are commissioning, has happened around women. And so it is not enormously surprising that a film you could argue has been seen as the most respected feminist film of the last 40 or 50 years has ascended to the top, even if it's raced all the way up from the mid-30s. And that is quite a jump from, from 35. Uh, to what extent then when the poll that are you and
0: 1,599 other critics uh, are, are from around the world, are you given any guideline as to what sort of criteria you should use when compiling a top list? Not really.
1: There, there, there is, um, there's um, a... Um, uh, there 's a bit of document that you get whenever you 're invited um, to, to the thing which says something to the, to the effect of I'm, i can 't quote directly mm. from it that they 're looking for the greatest films of that period, but you can define great however you wish uh, i mean I think in that case i mean there are some people who take this who take a very classical approach to that and and look look at their list and say which of these films in 50 or 100 years times is most likely to still be regarded highly which I suppose is what I do to an extent in my list but at the same time like a lot of people I do kind of, I do think that it's worth looking at the last 10 or 15 20 years and saying which are, what what film in there hit you made you go yes made you react most positively and may or may not last in yeah. the last 20 or 30 years after that. But nonetheless, you know, we have to some extent guess about how posterity is going to affect our critical choices in this list. And obviously they they take the 1600
0: responses and then compa- come, bring them all together and work out from that what is, is
1: yes. number and one. Yes, and so you have a, quite a number of ties, even with that yeah. number, when you get down below sort of 30, there are... Ties on yes. almost every uh, place yeah. after that, even with this number of voters. How worthy uh, a top film do you think Ackerman's film is? I think it's per- I think it's a perfectly reasonable choice. Uh, I think uh, it was not in my top ten. Um, I think even its greatest. Acolyte would say it requires some work um mm-hmm. uh, uh, the film lasts about three hours involves a woman in Brussels who um is is observed going through her day. she's a widow yeah. a mother going through her day in rigorous detail so when she cooks. Um, uh, a veal cutlet. You get to see the entire process from a static camera. Um, uh, I mean, I, <laughs> it feels almost like a joke to say I won't give away the ending because we're not talking about an Agatha Christie yeah. story here. But it does ultimately end in a in a moment of violent catharsis. But for the most part, it's a rigorous detail. And she was quite clear, Ackerman, um, about what she was up to here. I mean, she thought she... Comes to the fact that there is in cinema a hierarchy of incident. That is to say car crashes yeah. and gunshots and explosions are, are rated more important in terms of the camera's eye than are doing the dishes, cooking the meal and doing the things that a woman is Woman, a, a woman is, was then and still yeah. is in many places required to do in her daily life
0: and it has been seen very much uh, in terms of that feminist discourse yes. uh, how influential has it been in that particular area of filmmaking well, in and all, filmmaking in general and
1: obviously so I think I mean obviously you, you will you will, str- you will uh, search in vain to find its influence in Black Panther but certainly mm-hmm. filmmakers like Gus Van Zandt a, a male filmmaker but particular female filmmakers who've emerged in the 20 or 30 years afterwards Many of them have regarded it as a kind of sacred text. And it took a while to get there. I mean, it was released in 1975, and it, it was always well-reviewed. But it probably took 20 or 30 years before it bedded down and, and got mm. the reputation that it had. Uh, today. Put it this way, when people were talking about this poll, and I can assure you that um, the film community babbles about this poll incessantly. I mean, the, when the moment it, the vote took place, which is a good three or four months ago, people were getting incessantly talking about it, and it, I, I, certainly people felt that if there was going to be a film directed by a woman at number one, it was going to be this. Oh, right. um, I mean, it might be a Claire Denis film. Claire Denis has a film in the, in the uh, top ten, uh, beau travail, but the problem with Claire Denis is that Claire Denis has too many choices. She has four or five films that could have made it into the top uh, 10, whereas Chantal Ackerman has many great films, but one in particular that was always going to be at the top and that was uh, Jean Delman.
0: 60, let me do the maths 50 years in fact sitting at the top was Citizen Kane Shall we, why, and yes we most definitely shall listen to a little bit Um, Orson Welles as Charles Foster Kane of course the media mogul here in bullish form as a fairly idealistic young newspaper publisher (laughs) at this stage of the film he's young and idealistic at any rate Charles
2: I think I should remind you of a fact that you seem to have forgotten. Yes. That Mr. you are yourself one of the largest individual stockholders in the public transit company. The trouble is you don't realize you're talking to two people. As Charles Foster Kane, who owns 82,364 shares of public transit preferred, you see, I do have a general idea of my holdings. I sympathize with you. Charles Foster Kane is a scoundrel. His paper should be run out of town. A committee should be formed to boycott him. You may, if you can form such a committee, put me down for a contribution of $1,000. My time's On the, the other hand, I am the publisher to... of the Enquirer. As such, it's my duty, and I'll let you in on a little secret. It's also my pleasure... to see to it the decent, hardworking people in this community... aren't robbed blind by a pack of money-mad pirates... just because they haven't anybody to look after their interests. I'll let you in on another little secret, Mr. Thatcher. I think I'm the man to do it, you see. I have money and property. If I don't look after the interests of the underprivileged... maybe somebody else will. Maybe somebody without any money or property. Yes, yes, and that yes. Would Money be too and bad. property. Well, I happened to see your financial statement today, Charles. Oh, did you? Now, oh, tell me honestly, my boy. Don't you think it's rather unwise to continue this philanthropic enterprise? This inquirer that's costing you a million dollars a year? You're right, Mr. Thatcher. I did lose a million dollars last year. I expect to lose a million dollars this year. I expect to lose a million dollars next year. You know, Mr. Thatcher, at the rate of a million dollars a year, I'll have to close this place in 60 years.
1: <laughs> really funny film. I mean, it's one thing to forget. It's interesting. People get quite, quite pompous about Citizen Kane and yeah. say, "Why? Why should I watch this dreary well, it 1940s even A little bit of you know, uh, what, what, what? Carnes yeah, at really the end good, of really film.
0: Didn't know he was cracking. It's funny a joke there.
1: we're talking about there in the, when we're listening. It's, we to should that. just
0: explain that because obviously we, we were playing a bit of Citizen mm-hmm. Kane because for uh, it was the film at the top of the uh, Sight and Sound poll, the best, best films of all time type of poll for fifty years. Yeah. It was mm-hmm. there. Donald mm-hmm. Clark is part of the the jury. Along with, I should mention um, your colleague Tara Brady, also a regular reviewer on this program, and Ruth Barton, uh, arena reviewers who are part of the 1,600 critics who who voted in this Sight and Sound poll. So, uh, how far has has Orson Welles slipped? Will it take him 60 years to get to the <laughs> bottom of it?
1: Well, he's not gone far. Um, Interestingly, everything has changed and nothing has changed in this poll. In that we have, you know, in some yeah. ways, a surprising number one that's come more or less from nowhere. Um, but two, three, and four. are are Vertigo, Citizen Kane, and uh, uh, Otsu's Tokyo Story, which were one, two, and three last time around. So basically, they've been knocked down one place and it remained in exactly the same water. Look at the top 10, number five, again, reflecting perhaps some kind of cultural changes, One Car Wise in The Mood From Love, which is not so much significant that there's an Asian film in there, because there are plenty of Asian films. What's significant there is it's from 2001. And one thing, it's interesting that when I was writing a note about this a few, a few days ago, um, I was saying, in the next few days, we're going to have the same yeah. conversation people complaining about the fact this is old, old, old films. And if you look at the top ten, the average year is 1967, which is, you know, f- yeah. over 50 years ago. Mm. Um, and, but, in fact, what people have been mostly complaining about, the fact, is that there aren't too many new films. They're talking about, and the <laughs> social media is now ranting about the, you know, the problem of recency, recency bias, because Parasite is there way towards the bottom. Um, Get Out is there way towards the bottom. Um, and Portrait of the Lady on Fire by Cecilia is at number 30, which has caused some fury. But complete anyway, Compete the Plot 10, which we should do if people have, don't have it in front of them. Uh, number 6, 2001 is Space Odyssey, which landed a few decades ago and has been there ever since. Uh, Boat of by Claire Denis which has risen a, a good number of places um, since the last time around. Uh, Mulholland Drive by David Lynch another 21st yeah. century film one of two 21st century films within In the Mood for Love in the top uh, 10. Um, Lynch you know would it have been people would have said Blue Velvet yeah. um, might have said uh, Eraserhead but Mulholland Drive has kind of emerged as a consensus choice. Uh, Man with a Movie Camera interestingly the 1929 silent film by Jago Vertov um, did it number 9 which seems Seem to have taken over from Battleship Potemkin right. as the uh, situationist silent film of of choice for mm. the critics community, and in total contrast, number ten, Singing in the Rain, Singing <laughs> in the Rain, which I, 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 emerged again about twenty years after its release as a popular choice as a representation of pure Hollywood right. at its best.
0: But what, what what I'm interested in though, when you, when you talk about you know films creeping up and making their way then mm-hmm. in, into the top ten. To what extent, you know, does it actually reflect, the films are all good films, let's not Hmm, get into hmm. an argument about that. I think most people would recognise those as important films Mm -hmm. at any rate. Is this actually a reflection of discourse in and around film rather than the
1: films themselves? Well, the older films don't shift that much. I mean, as we just, as we just discussed, um, we have still in the top five. We have like three films wedged in there yeah, in the yeah. same place they were in um, ten, ten years ago. Uh, it does demonstrate certain shifts. I mean, it's intriguing to watch certain films suddenly arrive in a yeah. decade and then and then gradually drift downwards and downwards and downwards. For example, a good example of that would be. I mean, the great example of recency bias in. The history of this poll um, was Michelangelo Antonioni's L'Aventura, which landed uh, in 1962, two years after its release, in second place to Citizen Kane. Wow. And it's basically kind of slipped down, down every decade. And it's down now, about number seven. But that reflected a notion that was around at that time that Antonioni had hit a kind of uh, it had um, hit uh, um, an aesthetic that was pitched somewhere between melodrama and the avant-garde that was going mm. to define um, uh, uh, cultural filmmaking for decades to come, which it didn't quite do. But that's an interesting example of film which comes out of nowhere and then doesn't quite lodge. In total contrast, looking at the first poll in 52, um, Chaplin had two polls in the t- two films in the top three. Um, and Chapman at that stage was regarded not just as the phenomenon of Hollywood that he was, but also one of the great directors. I don't think people think about him that yeah. way anymore. There are still two films in the top 100, Modern Times and City Lights, I think. But they again have slipped away. And he didn't okay. have another film. In the, he only had one film in the top 10 after that point.
0: Um, you've you've also noted uh, Hitchcock and Goddard doing quite mm-hmm. well um, 2019 was a strong year
1: with two films at it yes now that is unusual that does demonstrate i mean it's interesting this notion of of the effort this year to widen diversity and one assumes also to lower the age a little bit because they tried this twice and the the interesting thing in 2012 was that that was the first year that they widened the um, electorate to include online publications. To that so point, so
0: your, when you talk about widening the range, you're talking the range of people who are voting, yes, and the the range of age and the, the age yeah. range of those and who in, are In
1: 2002, you could still kind of argue, you know, no publication that does, a, pu- a publication that does not have a physical form can't be regarded seriously. Um, you couldn't do that any longer in 2012. And so the age... One zooms went down, and yet the average year of the top ten went down in twenty, went backwards in 2012, despite the fact that you had many younger voters voting. This time, it has. Gone up this time. There are a significant number of more recent films, including, as you say, the two most recent films are from 2019, which is unusual for this poll to have that degree of recency uh, in it. Yeah. Also, you have we should point out the conversation about women is important. There were two films by women in the previous poll. There are now uh, nine, I think, so no eleven. So I think so. So those Still those things have changed. Only eleven out of eleven. Still out of exactly. 100. So yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, right. Um, we've mentioned Hitchcock a couple of times, um, and we shall certainly listen to a little bit of him as well or in this case her as it's Kim Novak as Madeline and uh, or Judy depending on which you want to think of her at what point you want to think of her and Jimmy Stewart in a scene from Vertigo
2: you believe I love you yes and if you lose me then you'll know I
3: I loved you and I wanted to go on loving you I won't
1: lose you let
3: me go into the church alone why
0: Seen there from Vertigo, and we listen to that as we are talking with Donald Clark this evening about Sight and Sound Poll Twenty Twenty, um, the once a decade poll of the top one hundred films in the world, as it were. And uh, there we had Vertigo, which is now at number two. In the poll, having slipped down from from number one, how long was it at number one for? Oh, just
1: one, just one poll. It, it, it got there for the of course, first yeah, time in twenty twelve. You think it, it was being being there years? for ten yeah, years? But yeah. of
0: course, that means it was there for one poll. Yeah, yeah but it's
1: interesting you mentioned. I mean, that, that obviously it's often helpful for a director if they have one standout film. Mm-hmm. Um so as Hitchcock has managed to win in one in one year and comes second again uh, a decade yeah. later, despite the fact that he is as you mentioned along with Goddard the most mentioned um, yeah. director in the poll. Four yeah. films there with North by Northwest, Psycho and Rear Window um, being the other three in that list. So it is a real testament to the staying power of Hitchcock among critics that he can win the poll one decade, still come second mm-hmm. despite the fact that he's among he's a, the most mentioned, jointly the most mentioned filmmaker on the 100. So uh, how strategically did you vote Donald <laughs> Clark? Because uh, give, give, give us a sense of, maybe give us a couple of, your, the first two or three on your own personal top ten. Well, I Not very strategically, I would say. I mean, I only have, I think, three, two that have made it into the top um, 100. Mm. Stalker by uh, um, Andre Tarkovsky, which is floating around uh, there somewhere. And uh, Ugetsu Monogatari by Mitsuguchi another kind of stable that's been in the top 10 I think uh, one decade but for the most part I have voted for films that, that are very personal to me and that, I, and for the most part I reckon probably wouldn't figure in the top 100 um, so I think the answer to that question is not very personal I mean I had one wild card I will admit to a wild card if people look at my list which is quickly of Frankenstein The Gets of Monogatari The Ghost of Mrs. Muir The Umbrellas of Cherbourg Sweet Smell of Success The Happiest Days of Your Life I Know Where I'm Going Stalker All oh, the Heaven the and Lady Bird is the wild card that allowed my so if I sat back and thought, look, Let's think about the last twenty years. Let's think about a film that you walked off thinking, yes, there's a film that really connected with me. It may or may not last. It may be forgotten in ten years. The next mm. poll comes around. It didn't figure in the top one hundred. It should be said this time around. But that was a film I really felt that connected with me, and I felt no guilt or um yeah or or, uh, or, or is, is lack there, of professionalism in picking it. Yeah,
0: is there kind of a thrill if you see one of your own films uh, doing
1: quite well? well? I suppose not, because I think we know what's going to do well. I mean, you yeah. know, I mean, in my I mean, both stories... Walker and the Monogatari have been there before. Stalker hasn't been in the top ten, but but getsu has been in the top ten, so yeah. you kind of know the ones I mean, I suppose I thought that I know where I'm going than Michael Powell Well, talk about strategy, for example I did think about, I had I had um, uh, Colonel Blimp by Michael Powell in the last time around I thought, you no, know, I think I prefer I know where I'm going a less famous film from 1945 but maybe I should stick with Blimp because that's more likely to get in, and do you know what <laughs> happened? Blimp fell out of the chart, it was <laughs> there in there I am responsible yeah. for Colonel Blimp <laughs> not being in the top 100 maybe possibly OK
0: <laughs> okay. well listen it is, it is a fascinating poll and as you say I'm sure there will be lots of discussion about it uh, in the coming days and weeks I have decided that um, we can indulge our ears and our imaginative eyes here if you like we have to visualize gene kelly a little bit of splashing a little bit of stomping uh, in the rain etc etc uh singing in the rain what number is it at now 10 in, it's at number 10 so just mightn't, in the be, top ten. mightn't be there in 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 say in the next in the next step uh, thing okay so um Tara Brady, Ruth Barton, as I said, among the uh, and Donald Clark, uh, the three Irish or three of the Irish people and critics who vote in that particular poll, so the Sight and Sound Poll twenty twenty two. A little bit of singing in the rain. <laughs>
4: I'm singing in the rain, just singing in the rain. What a glorious feeling! I'm happy again. I'm laughing at clouds so dark up above. The sun's in my heart And I'm ready for love Let the stormy clouds chase Everyone from the place Come on with the rain, I have a smile.
0: Ah, of course you've got a smile on your face and anybody who doesn't have a smile on their face listening to that needs to think about it just on this Friday evening is my advice. Singing in the Rain, number 10 in the Sight and Sound poll of 2022 and it was Donald Clark who was bringing us through some of the other winners and losers in that once a decade poll uh, the results of which have just been published. The Patient is a 10-part drama centering uh, on a successful psychotherapist, Alan Strauss, played by Steve Carell, and his unusual patient, initially known as Gene, but we later find out, is called Sam. And he's played by Donald Gleason. Although presenting as a discomforting character from the outside, Gene, whose real name, as I said, is revealed as Sam, reveals his true character when he kidnaps and imprisons Alan, his psychotherapist, and starts to open up about his dark and disturbing just The series has just started on Disney+, where two of the ten episodes are currently available. Dave Hanratty has watched those two as a vibe because they're so wonderfully short and tight. Um, and Dave is with me in, in the studio this evening. That is the basic uh, outline as I've given it. And we're not giving anything away about the kidnapping because the very we've described the first scene of the series to us, Dave.
5: Yeah, it's literally the opening scene. Steve Carell, of course, an actor primarily known for his comedic roles, but one who I think is quite capable as a mm. drama actor as well. He wakes up in a room, he's chained to a bed, he starts screaming, and then we get a little bit of a flashback as to how he got there. So yeah, there's no spoilers. That is literally the show. And of course, his patient, played by the wonderful Donald Gleason, uh, has a lot of nefarious activities on his mind, which he wants to share with his new therapist.
0: Yeah. The dynamic between the two of them is, is quite extraordinary. The... Chemistry works in all kinds of ways and this needs chemistry because it's essentially a two-hander for the most part.
5: 100%, yeah. You need to cast the right actors. Don Gleason spoke about how he was attracted to the role because initially when he read the script it, it focused primarily on the doctor character as opposed to the killer. Mm. He didn't want to be in kind of well-worn serial killer territory and I mean I will say with that in mind I think for people who are looking for a taste of what the show is like kind of feels like the HBO show In Treatment spliced with the Hannibal TV show which I thought was an amazing show from a few years ago that not enough people watched unfortunately and these two actors together it's great they have, they have terrific chemistry. I love seeing them both play against type, particularly Donald Gleason playing this kind of very sickly kind of character. Mm. He's not giving much away, and he's so cold in his detachment. And he's playing it almost worryingly well, I would say.
0: Yeah, yeah, he's, he's he's very understated. Let's have a listen to a clip from the series. This is their very first meeting, in fact. So he's still Gene; he's still calling himself Gene at this stage. The Donald Gleason character. And be warned: there's uh, quite a bit of language in their first meeting. Uh, both of them rather annoyed at each other at various points along the way. Steve Carell and Donald Gleason.
3: My dad beat the shit out of me. A lot. Uh, when I was a kid, and I think it fucked me up. That's a tough thing to go through. You said it fucked you up. In what ways? Always. (laughs) Like, I'm not content. I don't have a good social life. I get angry. That's the sort of thing you help people with, right? Yes. So I read your book. Huh. what'd you think? It was good. I thought, you know, this guy is a real expert. <laughs> well, I've been doing it a long time.
0: That's Steve Carell and Donald Gleason in a scene from uh, The Patient, new 10-part Disney series, Disney Plus series. And Dave Hanratty has been watching those first two episodes for us. I was said to you, and I've said this, I was saying this upstairs before I came down to the studio as well, Dave, these episodes are... 23, 24 minutes long, a, a television half hour in the olden days when you would have had an ad break in the middle, that would have filled the half hour out. They really are going for a tight, short format here.
5: And God bless the showrunners for this because we live in the content era. There's just so much like available to you, really. Mm. So you have to kind of prioritise what you do watch, what you choose to focus on. And yeah, the first episode's 20 minutes. It flies by. And straight away, I was ready for the second one. And I really want the third one now. It is tantalising. And even listen to that clip that we heard there. This could almost be a radio play. So mm. much of this goes down to Their dialogue, their interplay, they both sound so rich with what they're doing. The dialogue isn't necessarily like, you know, totally revolutionary, but it's such a great hook, isn't it? I mean, we've seen... Serial killers in therapy before. Sorry if I'm spoiling that he's a killer. He is. Yeah. It's again. But that's clear. Again, it's straight clear away. From the straight outset, away. Yeah. Like like that's. It hits the ground running so fast. Yeah. You know. You're told who is who very very quickly. It's not like a halfway through the season thing. But we've seen this before. We've seen it before in like you know the Thomas Harris books. We've seen it before. John Cusack and Gross Point Blank and a more comedic version of a killer going to a therapist. That's not necessarily a new idea. But you have to do something new with it. And I think putting these two actors in a confined space together for the majority, you get flashbacks here and there of other people involved. But these these two together it's a pairing I never would have thought of and they're electric together.
0: Yeah, they, they, they really are. Let's listen to another clip which gives us a sense of the kind of um, chemistry between the two of them uh, and this is a point a little bit later on and Steve Carell's character is getting a little bit fed up because he's saying, look, you're not, you're not telling me anything. I can't do anything. I can't give you advice or I can't be your psychotherapist if you won't open up to me. And this is the interaction between, once again, Steve Carell as the, the therapist and Donald Gleason as the patient who's now revealed that is actually his real name is Sam or he says his real name is Sam
3: Gene Sam you have to listen to me I am listening I am listening I know how to listen I understand this is upsetting for you I get that it's a little scary but this is the only way that I could I, I need help I want help I'm asking you for You said therapy can't work if I'm not truthful. I know that you're right, so... No, no, you don't understand. I don't... I don't think you know what you're doing to me. I realize it might take you a little time to get used to what's happening here. Whatever is troubling you, we can address it, but not here, not like this. Dr. Strauss, I have much bigger problems than your other patients. I have a compulsion... to kill people. A compulsion. Yeah, I do it. Sam, I don't mean just once or twice. Every once in a while, I just do it. And this has gone on ever since uh, for a long time. And I know I'm fucked up. I've read all the books, almost everything about uh, people like me people who do this stuff and i can't i want to stop
0: i want to stop says donald gleason as jean or is it Sam? Or will we find out in episodes three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, or ten that in fact there are a whole other bundle of names that he may or may not use? Steve Carell, there, I mean, as the psychotherapist, it's, it's one of the, you know, you mentioned it at the top, Dave, this idea of Steve Carell as the comedy actor. You know, we know him from Anchorman, we know him from The Office, we know him from The 40 the year old virgin, but Steve Carell has got serious dramatic chops and he shows them here. He does, yeah. And like, it's a tough role.
5: I mean, you could argue that Gleason has the more showy role, although he is underplaying mm. it. You heard there in the clip yeah. as well. He's holding a lot back. It's a very sickly kind of performance. I think I've already said. You know, he's kind of playing with the idea of a killer essentially and rejecting the, mm. these these tropes. And Carell has to essentially try and win him over, keep him from killing someone else, keep him from killing him, try and figure out a situation, try and potentially escape, all this kind of stuff going on. And a lot of it is just in his eyes. A lot of it is yeah. just in his face. You know, he's got a moment early on where he kind of screams and you can't help but be brought back to the comedy, Carell,
0: because you're so used to it. But once that's gone and it's gone pretty much straight
5: away, you're Absolutely. like...
0: Absolutely, yeah. And I mean, and you think of him in The Big Short or you think of him in Foxcatcher and films like that. He, he's proven this ability uh, previous to this and, and like you, pretty quickly... Yeah I wasn't I wasn't looking for any laugh lines in fact I got I got frightening laugh lines from Donald Gleeson who is it? Really good in this. He's great,
5: yeah. And I think ultimately, like, you have to have actors who can make this work. It's an unbelievable situation in one respect, but also, you know, like, when we look at the statistics and true crime documentaries that we see all the mm. time, showing this perspective, I think is quite interesting. And again, as you said before, keeping these as breezy short episodes, it does leave you hitting that kind of repeat button. And in the binge age, you know, when you like, there are so many shows that kind of spin their wheels, maybe two episodes too many per season. With this one, I'm like, this is such yeah. a refreshing thing.
0: And the other side if you have if a busy life many people do have busy lives you know by the time you get to sit down to watch the television you're only going to get a half an hour of it before you fall asleep anyway so these episode lengths are, are absolutely perfect e- Episode 2 ends with a real cliffhanger down to find out what'll happen next and we, we should get is it two episodes probably or one episode per week or we do know we, do we know that yet? Um, I
5: think the rotation's one per week per now like it has aired in the States it is a 10 episode season so it's basically been transferred now to European audiences so uh, I hope it's two episodes a week because I
0: really want to keep going yeah, with this Absolutely that's it Dave he speaking to us there about the Patient new 10-part series streaming on Disney+. First two episodes available now and further episodes to be drip-fed to us over the coming weeks. Friday evening, final half hour which means that it must be time for our album reviews First up will be Canadian punk rockers White Lung Lung, who crank everything up to 11 and possibly beyond that one last time on their farewell album Premonition an album which the band says is all about birth and rebirth We will then go to singer-songwriter Sophie Jemison as she wrestles with her demons in her long-awaited debut album Choosing And finally South Korean rapper RM of BTS fame documents the end of his 20s on his solo debut which is simply called Indigo. Our reviewers this evening, Brian Boyd and Zara Hederman. We will start with uh, White Lung. Do not be fooled by the first maybe four seconds of <laughs> this track. It, that's the only quiet bit, probably almost on the entire album. So um, either turn your volume down or up, depending on your taste for White Lung. Think you get a kind of a sense of what the album is like from that. What did I give you about a minute of the opening track? Hysteric, well named opening track from Premonition by White Lung. Um, <laughs> Brian, I suppose if you think the music is too loud, White Lung are not for you.
4: If it's too loud, you're too old. And that was one of their ballads. <laughs> the thing, that, the thing about them, White Lung, their Canadian band, this is their. F- uh, fifth album, and they're, mm. they've announced they're breaking up. They're not neo punk. They're not post punk. They are punk. They are no nonsense, heads down, sleeve sleeves rolled up, rock and roll. It's this album. You, you might need to go for lie down halfway through because mm. it's relentless. Yeah, it's, yes, it's sonic, relentless
0: for twenty nine minutes and thirty seconds. I mean, it's a short album.
4: There's there's no mid tempo. There's no slow tempo. They have just they've one gear, and they go for it. It's like Metallica and the Ramones having a fist fight in an alley. <laughs> but that's its strength. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of people would say, you know, White Long, oh, but it's just punk. There's no variation. There's No, no its strength is that there is no variation. What yeah. they do is they tinker within the elements of right. of, of bass, guitar and vocals. And, and they, it's a great album.
0: And, and Brian talking about the, it, it's punk. Mm. So what are they, if it's punk, they must be raging against something. What are they raging against? Could you... Um, ascertain that, Sarah?
6: It was difficult, Sean, because (laughs) um, as we heard, the instrumentation is quite loud um, Mm. and with that, Meet Barbara Way, the vocalist, I did find it difficult to discern some of the things she was singing about. Now, some of the themes in this, as you said, their birth and rebirth are hugely important Mm. to this. In the five years between this and the previous album, she's actually become a mother. So one or two of the songs kind of like hit at that. It was difficult to kind of hear it every Mm. now and again. And then there is another song where she is also talking about It's the first album that she has written, Sober. So she gave up alcohol in the interim between those two albums as well and I think there's a song Tomorrow where she is talking about that Yeah. so it does de- it's a very demanding album as we heard mm. and it does demand you to really pay close attention I could only really make out the lyrics when I had my headphones in and not that I had to
1: yeah. have had the
0: volume up which was <laughs> yeah. Having your headphones in is quite of. a challenge yes. <laughs> yeah. However yeah, yeah, I, I would say you said they have one gear they do kind of take maybe a, a shift down, sla- ever <laughs> mm. so slightly, on under glass. But that's, the, yeah, yeah, that's an interesting yeah. song.
4: That's influenced by Sylvia Path's "The Bell Jar." Yeah, and again, what Sarah was saying, you have to sort of really pay attention to work out. But there were some great lines I thought when she sang, "Oh, what a waste to be burdened with the hollow demands of another man's head." And so some mm. of the couplets really stand yes. out when you can hear them. Yeah. Um, and I, I like the Sylvia Path re- Sylvia Plath oh. reference was very good, but it's there's a lot of anger and a lot of uh, direct oh. assault but what happens is the singer and she's a great voice it's she doesn't screech her lungs out she actually modulates so it's she modulates her voice so it's always an empathy with the musical okay. dynamism
0: let's have a listen to then about as mellow as it gets from White Long the track on glass in
2: my head
0: The quiet track, as it were, on um, the Premonition, the new album and final album, they tell us, from Canadian band White Lung. And we all nodded in agreement that there's a real sound of the Cranberries in the midst of all of that, Zara. Mm.
6: Yeah, absolutely. And it was only till you had pointed it out mm. there, Sean, over the speakers as well, it's it's more evident. But yeah, as we were saying as well, I just wish there was more of that. Um because that was the one song on each return that I really liked. And I did find my experiences with this was quite inconsistent. Yeah. You really had to be in the mood for this. And it was very claustrophobic and it did make for a stifling listen. But then there were times where I thought that, you know, the magic in the, the musicianship yeah. was very powerful and I was impressed by oh, it. All
0: right, so start from you, Zara.
6: I'm going to go for a two and a half.
0: And in fact, you're saying, Ben, you don't want any more of the Underglass type song because you're looking for tracks, the other nine I, tracks. I, I, You're looking I, for the, the, the jangle.
4: Yeah, but paradoxically, their strength is, there is no variation. And you have to admire a band whose drummer is intent on destroying her drum kit <laughs> during every song. I've <laughs> never heard drumming like this three and a half stars.
0: Three and a half stars from you, Brian. OK, let us move on to album number two, Sophie Jemison choosing. And you couldn't pick a bigger contrast, uh, <laughs> in fact, in some ways. But again, um you mentioned about uh, the lead singer in... in uh in White long dealing with mm. alcoholism and, and getting sober. this Similar topics and themes in Sophie Jemison's debut album, but very different way of treating it and expressing it, Sarah.
6: Absolutely. So Sophie Jemison, she's a very interesting character. She's a London-based singer-songwriter mm. and actually she released a debut EP in 2013, so almost a decade ago, and that was critically well-received and there was a bit of a buzz about her then. But unfortunately, she had quite a bad recording experience I was reading in the studio. And with that, she had a a personal breakdown as well. Mm. So she just decided to completely withdraw from the music world and she didn't think that she was ever going to come back to it. And I'm really glad she did because this debut album is one of the most striking kind of emotive albums that I've listened to. She's very generous in talking about her um, experiences with alcoholism. And then thereafter, with her self esteem issue, yeah. she's very candid about it, and I really, really admired it.
0: All right, let's listen to a little bit of the opening track. Of the opening track from an album called Choosing, the opening track is called Addition.
3: More than the sun of my life, more than a drought, more than a drought, more than a flood. What did I do last night? You see, it,
0: even when you come off the back of her tracks, that's Sophie Jemison and the opening track Addition from her uh, debut album, Choosing. Um, she really, it, this is, it's confessional in a, in a way that you don't often. I mean, you are sitting in a room, it felt to me, opposite her. Mm. She's playing her guitar, and I felt she was singing to me mm. and nobody else. It's very communicative in that fashion brand.
4: Weirdly, so this album really had a huge effect on me. And even listening to it, I was thinking, I'm dying to play this again and again and again. It's it, it has a weird grip. You're shake, you're shaken, you're rattled, you're rolled. Mm. Even though the music is folk acoustic, it reminds me very much of the famous Stevie Smith poem where you're, she's wondering is a, if a character is waving or drowning. And you're not. This is the great. This is the great art with this album. In that she's actually titled a choosing, and she is in all of these songs. That's Mm. very, you just I mean. she is. She has a problem with drink. She has a problem with. Uh, she has painful beh- problems also. But you're not left with this sort of nice cliched binary choice. I was a drunk, but now I'm sober. And here's a few songs. You really wonder what's going on here. Yeah. And she doesn't offer you any easy, easy solutions. Yeah, she's, she's all and, working it out as
0: she goes along herself.
4: The, mm. the first song is about a really bad drunken night and experience she had. The last song is a really bad drunken experience she had one night. And she' bookends it beautifully, and you you 're not feeling yeah. voyeuristic or she brings you in and she's yeah, sort of she really explaining was. what her life is and she's and you're really sort of the music she with such sparse instrumentation she can conjure yeah. up a musical mood which oh. is remarkable mm-hmm. so there must be what two or three different instruments on this album yeah, yeah. it's a, it's a and, um, remarkable album
0: i haven't given out about. <laughs> How loud <laughs> the, um white lung was. Mm. I then found myself listening to this and, and being relieved initially um, by the, just the change in tempo and mm. the change in, in dynamic. But then after a while I thought, now I want now I want a little bit more dynamic, a little bit more change of pace. Did that uh, strike you, Zara, that perhaps this was... Very samey in a different way from White Lungs, very samey.
6: Do you know, initially, on my very first listen, I did think that. But actually, the more I went back to it Mm. and spent quite a lot of time with it, you really do appreciate the subtle intricacies of this like as Brian was saying, a lot of the songs are mainly just like one or two different instruments yeah. and she really um, uses effect pedals to her advantage but she does I think mix things up with say songs like Empties or Runner yeah. which is brilliant. Well and Runner it has, is very
0: good because at, at the very end you're, 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 it, it's, it's as if she's gallops, out running and it gets yeah. faster and faster yeah. So I
6: did think that she had a very um, she was very good at slowly building songs up but you didn't, I felt anyway, didn't get fed yeah. up with the process
0: Okay, Empties you mentioned there as well, which uh, uh, this is about as upbeat, I yeah. think, as, <laughs> as the record actually gets. Less of a listen to that.
6: You better not leave me
3: standing in my empties. Well, you win.
0: is the title of that track from Sophie Jemison from her debut album Choosing Um, and we're all kind of I think quite uh, seduced isn't the right word but kind of uh, involved um, in what she's telling us here and
4: intrigued and um, there's an almost gothic horror Mm. type appeal and sometimes you feel like you're listening to conversations that you've no right to be listening to but also there's great The best lyric I've heard all year in in any of any album this year is her line in one of the the songs here, which is, I left my dignity four bars behind. (laughs) And that's what comes through in this album is that there's musicianship. This isn't just like, I've got this really, I've got this really awful story to tell about my drunkenness and my my, um, maladaptive behaviour. But she backs it up with a musicality, which is, I think this will win the Mercury Music Prize. Oh, there's true. a big prediction.
0: There I you think go. This is oh, a. This, um, I, we'll, we'll hold you to that, Brian. Now, when the time comes, so yeah. stars from you on this one, Brian. Four, four and a
4: half. I think people. It's an album that I'll come back to again and again and again.
0: All right, four and a half for Sophie Jamison and choosing from Brian. And what do you think, Sarah?
4: Um, Well,
6: I have a line as well that I really loved and it really brought a a tear almost to my eye where she sang, I've searched all corners of this town to fill me up. And I thought that really summed up the emotion of it. Uh, So it's a four and a half from me as well. Four
0: and a half from you as well. Okay, let us move on to RM. Rose to fame as a member of BTS, world's biggest pop group of recent years. Safe to say there are legions of fans around the world excited for his debut solo album. Has the excitement made its way into the studio this evening? I wonder. Let's have a listen to a track called Hectic. Ah yes, my head is nodding, my foot is tapping And <laughs> Zara Hederman, you said exactly the same thing This one got you on the couch this afternoon It did, That's um, RM of BTS fame and his solo album which is called Indigo
6: it is, yeah. No, I did really enjoy that song this afternoon when I was listening to it. And I did, like, I went into this with little expectation. I'm not a massive BTS fan, but I did like how this album had a bit more kind of suave and sophistication to it than the BTS stuff. Right. I mean, there's Erica Badu was on here, yeah. uh, Anderson Pack, So I was surprised when there was some kind of good grooves. Now, it is overproduced, but within that, you know, you did have songs like Hectic, which in the moment it got me, will I be yeah. returning to this
4: Probably not.
0: Brian, as a lifelong BTS fan, <laughs> how do you feel
4: about this? B- BTS fans are still chasing me around the internet after I didn't like the last album we reviewed uh, it in the show. Still here we um, go again. It's <laughs> here very goes round the, the very first word you hear from him on this album is F U C K. Yeah that's And that true. is deliberate. What he's trying to do here is he's he's trying to take a torch to the fact that he used to dress in white suits and sing variation mindless oh, variations that's... of I love you, baby. And now he's trying to be all adult and I'm he's talking out of that. about. Yeah. He's talking about. You know, I want to be taken seriously. I want to be. and
0: the, the Should that, we take him seriously? I have no. to ask you quickly. and no. How many stars are you going to give him? Uh, one and a half. One and a half. I it's a dreadful were- album,
4: and it's a missed opportunity
0: dreadful album and a missed opportunity mm. well that's fair enough so you see some talent in there what are you saying Zara? I wouldn't
6: say it's dreadful it's overproduced and it's two and a half
0: it's overproduced yeah. and it's two and a half okay um, I, I don't think his sales will be impacted by the one and a half and two <laughs> and a half star rating somehow or other Indigo the title of RM's new album Choosing from Sophie Jemison and Premonition for from White Lung Brian Boyd and Zara Hedeman our reviewers on this Friday evening